Well, if I'm ever in London, in downtown London, how many of you have been there? I imagine many of you have. I have not had that privilege. Uh, It's one of those my wife gets to say, well, I've been there many a time. But when my wife takes me to London, there's one place that I would like to go that fascinates me quite a bit, and that dates back to the time of World War II. I have a fascination with World War II. That was also the time of Winston Churchill. There's a place there, some of you may have been there as well, Churchill's Underground War Rooms. Anybody been there before? Okay, well this is a place that I would like to go. This is where Churchill and his team plotted the strategy to defeat Hitler and his forces during World War II. And oftentimes it's in times of war that we think, or or when we look and think back in times of war, we think of the challenging conditions on the front line, and probably the most challenging conditions were often on the front line, but that wasn't the only place where people were struggling and having a hard time as they were back at home and trying to black out the curtains and trying to avoid the, the air raids and so on and so forth. And London was certainly right there in the thick of it, much different than the United States across the pond, you understand. And so they set up this place for Churchill for as the prime minister and for his uh, advisors and his team to be underground in London. Uh, much of the time with air raids and different things, this is where they would go. And if you can study there the, the picture a little bit, you can see all of these phones lined up and, and different, you know, there's a map there on the back wall as they tried to make calculations of what to do next. And so much of his advisors would actually live there all the time. Now, Churchill didn't like to sleep there. He had a place that he could, and it's been told that he slept there about three different occasions. So I don't know what was happening on, on those evenings that caused him to stay there, but much of the time he liked to make his way out and sleep someplace else. Maybe there was some fear that people would find out where the war room was because it was not able to withstand a direct hit from a bomb. And so maybe he thought, just in case, I'm going to slip out to another secret spot. I don't know. But now you can tour this place, and you just kind of get this feeling of if you're claustrophobic in any sense that the hallways are narrow the ceiling is low the rooms are small the air is stale there's not one window there's not fresh air circulating through and I imagine just because of the era there's a smell of metal and you know all of these types of things and this is what is known as the war room the other thing that is interesting is that during that time There was a, in fact, there was a book written about this time by Simon Singh uh, called The Code Book. And in that book, he describes the code breakers in England's Bletchley Park during the war. And one of the many challenges was that the Nazis had a secret code or way of communicating. Uh, They would call it the German Enigma machine that is pictured there in the left. And in both of these pictures, you, you probably can find soldiers of the German army using this Enigma machine. And you might say, well, what is that? Well, it's kind of like when you were in grade school and you play spy in your neighborhood and you had a secret code and they had the key to the secret code and you would write it out. And unless they knew which letters represented which, except this is much more sophisticated. It's a little bit mind-blowing for that time, honestly. So there are three kind of big curved things at the front of or at the top of this. Those could be changed to any number of combinations. Uh, and then down here at the bottom, there were plugs where you could make it even more customizable to where <clears throat> on any given day of the war, the Germans had set up, these are the codes that we will use for our code machine. You confused yet? 
So on a certain day, they would turn those dials to H, Q, T, whatever it said, and then they might plug or unplug these bottom things, and then it would be set to either encrypt or be able to figure out the encryption of the code for that day, whatever it might be. Attack, I don't know, at midnight. And so the way it would be used, once you got that put in there, it was kind of a two-man job. One person would type the letters... You know, if it's going to be attack, you hit A, but then another, you can kind of see these uh, other keys above. They're not really keys, but they're buttons that would light up. So you would hit A for attack, and maybe a P would light up, and so the person would write P. And then you write, you'd hit T on the, the keyboard, if you will, not a keyboard, typewriter, or whatever. You hit T, and another letter would light up, and they would write that down until they got all the way through their message. And then on the other end, on that day, they would know, okay, and they'd set their dials to interpret it, and sure enough, it says, attack at midnight. And supposedly, this was so sophisticated that without this little box and without knowing the day and how to spin everything, the, way, the only way to crack the code or, or to crack the code would be one in 150 million, million, million as far as combinations. Wow. So the question during World War II was, could it be broken? Because if we know what the enemy is going to do before they do it, there's a huge advantage. Well, they carefully selected this mathematical team of geniuses and brought them together to see if, in fact, they could break the German code of this box, the Enigma. One design flaw that they found was that the letter that they always, that they would type was never the one that came out, if that makes sense. So if you type A for attack, it would never say A. It would always be something else. That and some other things and some other things that they were able to scramble. And they were eventually starting to put some things together, some hints, if you will. But it was this man in your bottom right of your screen, Alan Turing, that decided to make an elaborate, complex machine that would try and try and try and try and try and try to decipher the Nazi codes. How that machine, that mechanical machine, literally worked, I'll let, leave that to you and Google this afternoon. <laughs> It was doubted whether or not it could be done. At times, he doubted whether or not it could be done. But in fact, it was accomplished. This is a picture of the machine that was developed to break this Enigma code. It was later dubbed the Turing, after his last name, the Turing Bomb. And upon cracking the code, these scholars at Bletchley Park were able to read Enigma communications throughout most of the war. Now that's a big deal. To be able to, ca- to crack the enemy's code. Friends, Revelation is a book that is a code breaker, if you will. The Bible's last book of Revelation reveals and unmasks the plans of Satan and also gives us the plans of God. And if you know what the enemy is going to do before he does it, friends, it's a game changer. And the best news of all, this code book, The book of Revelation, the last book in your Bible and my Bible, it outlines the simple yet profound truth that in times that we are living in that we know are unprecedented, filled with virus and pandemic, global shutdown, peaceful protests uh, in the midst of all kinds of things. Of course, we have not so peaceful protests. We've seen that in the news. We have fires out west going on. We have debates that are more like yelling matches. And despite of everything that's going on, Revelation's code breaker tells us a simple and profound truth that Jesus wins and Satan loses. 
The heart of this battle is outlined in Revelation chapter 12. And in that chapter, we see four episodes, if you will, four vignettes, four snapshots of the great controversy, beginning with the battle in heaven to the closing battle on earth. And so I hope you brought your Bible. I want to look at those four little snapshots in Revelation chapter 12. And I doubt any of this will be news to you, but hopefully it will get us thinking about the times in which we're living a little bit differently. Because if you're like me, the news is not a pick-me-up. Is it for you? But we need to remember what the code breaker, what the book of Revelation reveals to us. And so, beginning there, let's read there in Revelation chapter 12 is where we'll be this morning. And beginning in verse 9, let's read those, sorry, verse 7 to verse 9. Let's begin in verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Heaven? That's kind of a strange place for war. Michael and his angels fought. The dragon and his angels fought. Was this a physical battle or simply a mental war game? I would propose it was both. But notice carefully that every angel in heaven had to make a choice. We don't have a third group where they were able to be neutral. There's no Switzerland in these verses. No middle ground. Every angel had to make the all-important choice regarding whose side they would be on. Friends, in Earth's final conflict, there is no neutrality. I have a letter written to a college student dating back to the 60s, uh, and the story is going to surprise you. This college student was a Christian, but a communist evangelist. There is such a thing. Communist evangelists came to the university in this country, United States of America, and it was in the late 60s that this Christian who was engaged to a wonderful Christian college woman, but he started reading the philosophers and writings of Marx and Engel and others, and he was just enamored and enchanted by the thoughts of world communism. And so when this Christian young man was exposed not only to these writings but to this communist evangelist he wrote a letter to his girlfriend as to why he could no longer continue the relationship with her and why as a communist he had to break their engagement and you say why are you going to read this letter well as i read this letter i want you to ask yourself this question do i have do i have the commitment to the cause of christ to hasten the coming of jesus as does this young man who's writing the letter That's the question I want you to ask. Here's how the letter reads. He says, I'll leave the name out. I can no longer enter into our engagement because I have become a communist. And we communists have a high casualty rate. We are the ones who get shot. We get hung. We get uh, lynched. We get tarred and we get feathered. We get jailed. We get slandered. We get ridiculed. We get fired from our jobs in America. In every way, we are made uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed. We turn back to the party. Everything that we earn, every penny goes back to the Communist Party except what is necessary to keep us alive. We communists don't have time for movies. We don't have time for concerts or T-bone steaks. We don't have decent cars or homes. 
We've been described as fanatics, and we are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. Have mercy. We communists have a way of life that cannot be bought for any price. We have a cause to fight for. We have a definite purpose to live for. This one thing, which I am in dead earnest, this is my communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife, my mistress, my bread, my meat. I work at it at the daytime. I dream about it at night. It holds on and grows and never lessens as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating it to my cause, and I have to break our relationship. Mercy. We can feel bad for the girl, but at the same time, we can be thankful. The question, again, does our cause for Christ call for less commitment than the call for communism? Does the call for Christ call for our best? Total, absolute commitment? The cause of Christ, I would submit, is much broader. The cause of Christ is much greater. The vision of the second coming of Christ makes the cause of communism the paltry nothingness that it is. But as Christians, where do we find ourselves? Going back to Winston Churchill, he said this, It's not enough to have lived. We must be determined to live for something. And I believe that is a great desire of of all humans across the planet. Okay, I'm living, but I need to live for something. What am I going to live for? And so people are desperate to have a cause, to have a purpose. What am I going to get behind? What am I here for anyway? And in a vacuum of purpose that we find in Scripture, the devil is real quick to put in any number of things, isn't he? There is no neutrality. Feuder Davoski, I think is how you say his name, he's the Russian Christian philosopher who resisted communism. This is what he has to say. The mystery of human existence exists in not just staying alive, but in finding something to live for. Same idea, isn't it? What do you and I live for? We see that tagline from time to time. I live for chocolate. Do you? In the whole scheme of things, is that all that life is to you? Get chocolate, get chocolate, get chocolate. I doubt it. Finding something to live for. There's no neutrality. Manuscript 78 says this. Christ shows that there can be no such thing as neutrality in his service. The soul must not be satisfied with anything short of entire consecration. Consecration of thought, voice, spirit, and every organ of mind and body. It's not enough that the vessel be emptied. It must be filled with the grace of Christ. Like what Carmelita said about the gravel truck. Where'd she go? I don't know. We have to be filled so we can be emptied and so we can be filled and emptied. There's no neutrality in earth's final war. But there is this incredibly good news of Revelation 12. It describes Christ's triumph in the galactic battle, the great controversy, the war in heaven millenniums ago. Jesus wins and Satan loses. That ought to impact what we live for. Jesus wins and Satan loses. What does it say in Revelation 12, verse 8? But they did not prevail. In the battle for the control of the universe in heaven, over the throne of God, Jesus and his angels won, and the devil was defeated. The devil wants to 
cause us to think it's the other way around now? Is that honestly the case? Jesus has never lost a battle with Satan yet. Friends, Jesus is the mighty warrior, the conquering general, the victorious Lord, and the triumphant king. And in the battles we face in our own personal lives, in the struggles that confront us every day, we can have the absolute assurance that in Christ, because of Christ, through Christ, we are more than conquerors. But we're quick to forget that. The devil is quick to suggest otherwise. And so we go around complaining, rehearsing our doubts, our frustrations, our fears, our worries, our woes, our anxieties. Are we more than conquerors? Something I didn't get in my notes, so I pulled it up on my phone. That's technology today. This is in Acts the Apostles, page 25, I believe. When Christ was crucified, they did not believe that he would rise. He had stated plainly that he was to rise on the third day, but they were perplexed to know what he meant. This lack of comprehension left them at the time of his death in utter hopelessness. Are there people today walking around in utter hopelessness? They were bitterly disappointed. Their faith did not penetrate beyond the shadow of, that Satan had cast upon their horizon. And this is the line that really gets me. It got me this week in my personal devotions. If they had believed the Savior's words, how much sorrow they might have been spared. If they had believed the Savior's words. But because of my lack of belief, I bring sorrow upon myself. I bring woe upon myself, heartache upon myself, restless nights upon myself because I don't believe the word of God. I don't believe I'm more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. The devil, or sorry, not the devil, but the devil was using all of these things with the disciples, but it had the disciples believed the word of Jesus. And he said it more than once. They would have said, it's going to be okay. Because Jesus said, and I'm taking his promise to the bank. How does that make sense? How's that going to work? I don't know, but Jesus said it, therefore it will happen. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. Episode number two. Four episodes and then we're going to be done. Satan attacks Jesus. Centuries pass. And so Satan focuses his attention upon destroying Jesus. Let's read about it in Revelation chapter 12. We're backing up now, beginning in verse 3. It says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And so we know this is Satan also working through civil Rome. And it says, And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Now, a rod is a symbol of rulership in the Bible. And a rod of iron is a symbol of unbreakable, all-powerful, invincible rulership. Somehow, sometimes along the way, we'll put a little bamboo reed in his hand, won't we? We'll put a little stick in his hand. You rule with this little toothpick, God. No, he has an iron rod that is invincible in terms of his rulership. And Jesus faced every single temptation that we experience. And he came off more than a conqueror. 
As the Apostle Paul puts it, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, which is the cross. I think that's beautiful. So episode number two, Satan attacks Jesus. And then let's read now verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. Friends, that's good news. Again, Jesus wins and Satan loses. But don't just skip over that verse. What has come? Well, it listed off salvation, power, strength. And so when we accept the righteousness of Christ as our righteousness, and we are declared righteous through Christ's death, the dying Christ declares us righteous through his blood. And the living Christ makes us righteous through his intercession. And so then we read in verse 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Ellen White gave counsel to a man who looked on the gloomy side of life. Do you ever look on the gloomy side of life? Don't raise your hand. And she admonished him with this divine counsel. She said, your life is now miserable, full, full, full of evil forebodings. Gloomy pictures loom upon up before you. Dark unbelief has enclosed you. By talking on the side of unbelief, you have grown darker and darker You take satisfaction in dwelling upon unpleasant themes. We could just say, you you take satisfaction in dwelling upon the news. If others try to talk hopefully, you crush out in them every hopeful feeling by talking all the more earnestly and severely. Yet no one can help you as well as yourself. If you want faith, talk faith. Talk hopefully cheerfully. Here's an eternal truth, friends. Our faith grows as we accept Christ's victory as ours, as mine. Our attitudes are greatly affected or affect our actions. Faith-filled Christians live in Christ's victory over the powers of hell. Christ's victory over Satan was complete, but the great controversy between Christ and Satan is not over yet. Satan was defeated in heaven. Satan was defeated at the cross, but in a very real sense, still wages against the people of God on this earth, you and me. Are we going to talk faith? Are we going to be more than conquerors through Jesus Christ, our Lord? Or are we going to talk doubt and disbelief and talk about how we're miserable and how we have evil forebodings and gloomy and dark unbelief? If that's the case, friends, no one can help you as well as yourself. Turn off the foul mouth. Turn off the bad attitude. Turn off the doubt. Well, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't fully either. But I know that in the end, Jesus wins and Satan loses. Period. Here's another quotation, volume 7 of the Testimonies, page 213. We do not understand as we should the great conflict going on between invisible agencies, the controversy, controversy between loyal and disloyal angels. Over every man, good and evil angels strive. There is no make-believe conflict. It is not mimic battles in which we are engaged. We have to meet most powerful adversaries, and it rests with us to determine which shall win. And if you read on further, she's not talking about in our own strength, in our own power, but it is up to us to determine who we will believe in. 
who we will speak of, who we will proclaim. Will we claim the victory of Jesus Christ? Will we overcome the devil by the blood of the Lamb and the words of our own testimony? As it says in verse 11. Also in Revelation here in the passage, the word overcome can also be translated as conquer, to prevail, to triumph, to come through victoriously. That's what it means to overcome in that passage. And you might say, how is this possible? And Revelation again answers the question, through the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb is the central figure in the book of Revelation. The Lamb of God, our perfect Savior, who gives His life in perfect sacrifice, is mentioned 28 times in the book of Revelation. The Lamb is a symbol of sacrifice. What did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus for the first time? Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, John 1, And through His sacrifice, our guilt is gone. Our sins are forgiven. And we are no longer condemned for our transgressions, but they are taken away from us. He bears the guilt, the shame, the condemnation of our sin, of my sin. Praise the Lord. Am I worthy? It's not part of the equation. William Barclay is a commentator. He states it this way. The forgiveness which is in the cross has left Satan the accuser the finger pointer, if you will, has left Satan the accuser no possible accusation to make. Friends, that's good news, isn't it? Charles Wesley said it this way, Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands, my name is written on his hand. Friends, through Jesus... Because of Jesus, we have the right, the guarantee of eternity. Satan is a defeated foe in the sense that the stranglehold of death is broken. By faith, through the blood of Christ, eternity is ours to claim. The cross satisfies the claims of a broken law. The lawgiver pays the penalty for our breaking the law. The creator becomes our redeemer. The innocent one accepts our guilt. The sinless one accepts the penalty for our sins and pays the ransom price to redeem us. That is good news. And so at the cross, love triumphed over hate. Righteousness defeated unrighteousness. Truth triumphed over error. Life defeated death. Hope was the victor over despair. But I see too many Christians today in despair. Too many of my own days are filled with despair. Why? Because I've forgotten that in Jesus, I'm more than a conqueror. The devil wants us to forget that little fact. But it's there every day. Napoleon said this, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded great empires. But upon what did the creations of of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love, and to this very day, millions would die for him. Friends, there's not a reason for discouragement, and there's no reason for despair. Trials, yes. Disappointments, certainly. Obstacles, most definitely. Heartaches, yes, of course. 
But in spite of these things, let us not be discouraged or despair. Why? Because the daily presence of Christ throughout or through the Holy Spirit reminds us that there is a better world coming. And that through Jesus, we have a place guaranteed there that we are more than conquerors through Christ. Jesus wins. Satan loses. He's a defeated foe. And in Christ, the battle victory is not probable, not hopeful. It's certain. Episode number three. Satan attacks God's people. For that, we're in verse six. And then we'll jump to verse 13 and 14. Then the woman, verse 6, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Jumping to verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. There's a few key phrases here I want you to notice. First, notice in verse 6, a place prepared by who? By God. And then in verse 14 it says, this woman is nourished in the wilderness. Again, I would submit by God. I submit also this morning that every time the devil attacks a child of God, God has a place of refuge prepared for his children, for you and for me. The wilderness for a woman alone is a dangerous place unless God has prepared a special place for her. It becomes a place of safety, to be nourished, to be protected. In the Middle Ages, God's people were often oppressed and persecuted. They were often hunted. Some were martyred. They were, as Paul writes, hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. And that can be the passage that the Christian can proclaim as they're burning at the stake. You may burn my body now, but I'm not going to be crushed. I'm not going to be perplexed. I'm not going to be in despair. I'm not struck down. I am more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. Whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, through Jesus we will be victorious. This is a little bit of a long quote, but I think it's good. From Desire of Ages 679. Christ rejoiced that he could do more for his followers than they could ask or think. Isn't that nice? He spoke with assurance knowing that an almighty decree had been given before the world was made. He knew that truth, armed with the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit, would conquer in the contest with evil, and that the bloodstained banner would wave triumphantly over his followers. And then this last line, he knew that the life of his trusting disciples would be like his, a series of uninterrupted victories, not seen to be such here, but recognized as such in the great hereafter. I think about the illustration that Pastor Hyman used with his son and, and with Sarah and the money that they got tricked out of and all of this mess. And on our side of the story, this is maddening, this is infuriating, this is wrong. 
all true. How could you let this happen? And I imagine in those moments, not that you ever said that, but I would have. God's saying, be patient. I have a plan. Hint, and it's better than your and it's better than yours. Right? And so now in the course of a few weeks, we get to see God's plan of him being glorified, of an individual's conscience being pricked, and of young kids that are going to be okay financially too. And we say, oh, okay, I'm okay now. How come I have to see to be okay now? By faith, isn't that seen without seeing? And so when something happens, I say, Lord, how could you let this happen to me? Or do I say, Lord, I don't understand this thing. But I know that you're in control and you're a professional at bringing the best out of a horrible situation. And he'll do it. And this quote reminds us, a series of uninterrupted victories not seen to be such here, now, but recognized such as in the great hereafter, that time later on when we get to see the end from the beginning in a way similar to how God does, and we say, wow, I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. Friends, Christ has called us to victory, not defeat, to triumph, not loss, to success, not failure, to speak faith, not doubt. In the attack against God's people, Jesus wins, Satan loses. Are you picking up on a theme? I hope so. Episode 4, it's lunchtime. Satan's attack on the remnant, verse 17, still in Revelation chapter 12. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. I mean, this is strong language, enraged. I hope you never get enraged. The dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Friends, the devil is furious with this group of people, with you. And with me, those that keep the commandments of God, that have the testimony of Jesus Christ, maybe that's why he gave us that special advantage. And he's doing everything he can to destroy us. I don't know if you can read this article. It says, it's from Spectrum. I don't like to read Spectrum, but this was sent to me. It says, Universal Sunday Laws and Adventist Doctrine in Transagence which is a refusal to change one's views. And if you read the article, it speaks about the embarrassment of having the word Adventist in our name because it's been 176 years of time that's lapsed since 1844 and Jesus has not yet come. When are we going to come to grips with the fact? Then it starts to rip the idea of of the Sunday law being unbiblical and challenging Ellen White's statements that are so clear about it. And it says, it is past time that we reevaluate the prophecy. Times have changed. Things are different now. It certainly will not happen, in reference to the Sunday law, soon. It certainly not will, will not happen in my lifetime. And he ends by speaking of this burden on future generations and the result of spineless Adventist leaders who see the problem but look the other way. What? Really? I think of 2 Peter 3.3. 3 knowing this verse, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? You think they said that to Noah? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. I think of this quotation, last day events is one place it's cited on page 156. 
we have far more to fear from within than from without. The hindrances to strength and success are far greater from the church itself than from the world. That's talking about the hindrances. So we do have a battle to wage. The remnant church is under attack, not just from out there, but from in here. What's going to happen? I don't know. I think we need to rehearse our woes. Ah! Satan's attack on the remnant today is real. This final conflict is for the minds of God's people. It is a battle between two opposing forces, the forces of heaven and the forces of hell. And the central question in this final war is, who has your loyalty? Where is your allegiance? Heaven is calling for a final generation of believers who are so charmed by Christ's love, redeemed by His grace, committed to His purposes, empowered by His Spirit, and obedient to His commands that they are willing to face death itself for His cause. Sounds radical, but not when you know the one you're serving. Friends, our world is headed for a major crisis. We are on a collision course. But here is the incredibly good news. Jesus wins. Satan loses. Christ and his church are going to triumph. In Jesus, by Jesus, through Jesus, and because of Jesus, we will triumph at last. Christ's victory is the eternal guarantee of our victory. Our heavenly high priest will never let us down. He will get his people through earth's last hours. Do you believe that this morning? Dan Crawford lived from 1870 to 1926. He was born in Scotland and his father died in early age. He grew up in a Christian home, having to be the man of the house very early. And at age 16, he gave his heart to the Lord. And then he was inspired by people like David Livingston and others. And so he decided at the age of 19 to be a missionary to Africa, to leave Scotland, to leave everything he knew behind and go minister to the people in Africa. One of his greatest accomplishments was translating the entire Bible into the Luba language with 12 genders and 32 verb tenses. So first you have to learn the language, you have to learn all the genders, you have to learn all the verb tenses because if not, the gospel may just come out wrong. And then he translates all of the Bible into their language so they can read and understand. After living with the people for 37 years, he was sleeping at night and he kind of turned and jerked quickly. I don't know if you ever do something like that where you just kind of... And he hit his hand on a shelf that he had beside his bed, the back of his hand. Ow! That didn't feel too good. Went back to bed, looked at it the next morning... Didn't think too much of it. You know, we take for granted our bodies are going to heal. It's going to be okay. But it wasn't healing, and it wasn't looking like it was going to be okay. In fact, it started to look very infected. And it looked like it was getting worse. And it looked like something called gangrene. And it looked like it was traveling up his arm. And he knew very quickly he was in big trouble. In his journal, he wrote... This week I suffer under a grave disability. My left arm is poised. Sorry, is poisoned. And this poison is knifing me very hard. So here we are in God's hand and all is well. Gangrene making its way up. 
But here I am in God's hand and all is well. The infection continued to spread rapidly up his arm. He recognized that it was fatal. He wrote again in his journal, Goodbye, dear friends, we will meet at the appearance in excellent glory. But what I want to share with you is a motto that was not Dan Crawford's just at the end, but that was one of his mottos throughout his life, and it goes like this. I cannot do it alone. The waves dash fast and high. The fog and mist set in. You ever have those days? The light goes out in the sky, but I know in the end we too shall win. Jesus and I. Goes on to say, a coward, wayward and weak. I change with the changing sky. Today so strong and brave, tomorrow too weak to try. But he never gives up. And in the end, we too shall win. Jesus and I. Friends, in this ever-changing, uncertain world, can you relate with Dan Crawford at times? Coward, wayward, weak, changing with the sky, brave, strong, then tomorrow weak, too weak to try. But he recognizes that he, Jesus, never gives up in the end, and we too shall win, Jesus and I. Friends, the reality of Revelation 12 is that I don't have to fear. I don't have to be discouraged or filled with despair. Why? Because in the end, we too shall win, Jesus and I. Our closing hymn today is number 608, Faith is the Victory. And the good news this morning is whatever your circumstances that you find yourself in today, through Jesus, we too shall win and be victorious. Dear Heavenly Father, in the midst of this crazy world that we find ourselves in, we take hope in the simple truth that we find in your word that we know how the story ends, that Jesus wins and Satan loses. Despite whatever we're going through, may we cling and claim that very simple promise that in you and by you and through you, we may be victorious. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.